three, two, one. This is Own the Block Podcast, and these are your hosts, Josh Derriman and Pierce Berg. Welcome to episode one of the Own the Block Podcast. This is Pierce Burton along with Josh Derriman. This is our very first episode going into all things real estate from a finance perspective. Both of us are loan officers. Today, we're going to be evaluating a property for you. It's just a property we picked at random with an area that we're very familiar with, Sacramento, California, because that's where Josh and I met. Josh? Hey, Paris. Josh here, co-host. Um, yeah, let's let's pull this up. Uh, we, we picked a property. It's a five-unit property, so it's technically commercial. Anything over four units is commercial, uh, but this is a good example. So the, per- the asking price is $765. It's four units, and it's just a hair under $6,000 a month gross rent. Uh, the notes here show that they do have Section 8, um, and then if the investor puts 25% down, you're looking about uh, $4,500, $4,600 payment. So you'd be walking away with about $1,400 a month in gross profit on this particular property. But let's dive into it. Pierce? Josh, real quick, you, you kind of did that. I think you did that calculation real quick in your head on, on mortgage payment. How, how do you do that calculation just real fast in your head like that? Is there an easy trick? for the folks out there to be able to do that, kind of just look at how much they're going to owe and know right away uh, what that payment amount's going to be? You know, over, over the years, I've had people ask that question, um, you know, what per 100,000 should you use? I don't, I don't like to use those sorts of um, tricks. I just, I just look it up. You can pull up an amortization calculator and put in interest rate, down payment, and it'll spit out your, your monthly payments, uh, add your estimated taxes, add your, add your insurance, and it, that's it. It takes 30 seconds. And I always have clients call me, what's my payment going to be on this uh, calculation, Mucky? And that's exactly what I do. I just go online and type in you know, amortization calculator and plug something in, and then I try to share that same calculator with, uh, with, with the clients there because... Um, it's pretty easy to figure that out for sure. Uh, yeah, in terms of this property, what area of Sacramento is this property in, Josh? Again, is it? It's I think it's in uh, North Sacramento, right? Well, this is actually just north of where you used to live. It's uh, old North Sacramento. So if you're if you're in uh, kind of downtown Sacramento, just a hop over the American River. Uh, it's not a bad area, um, um, so this, there are definitely areas of Sacramento I wouldn't buy in, uh, but this is, this is a pretty decent area. <laughs> That's wrong. That area is horrible, Josh. It's it doesn't better. look, I mean, it doesn't look that bad. Yeah, it's, it's getting better for sure. The further north you get, the, the well, worse it gets, but, you know, that's kind of uh, besides the well, point here. Go ahead. I like how you laugh at that. So there's definitely, you're absolutely right. If you start getting up north, like you start to get into, you get some funkier areas. I don't, you know better than I do, but I didn't feel like this was that terrible of an area. Yeah, no, it's definitely gotten better over the years. And so that's that's one thing 
that you know we've started to see in pretty much all major cities now is that there's kind of the trickle out effect, right? For example, in Sacramento, that area in particular, and an area called Oak Park, were you know 20 years ago were just war zone type areas, and over the years they continue to get better and better as the downtown improves because everyone wants to be close to downtown. And you can speak to this because you lived in Sacramento in, I think, what, the 90s and 2000s? Josh? Is 2000s. Right? 2000s. In, in the 2000s. There was nothing to do in downtown Sacramento at that time, right? And so as soon as fun starts coming into that area, there's that trickle-out effect. As soon as there's you know bars, restaurants, things to do in the town, they built a brand new arena. <clears throat> it's a really good idea to start investing in properties like this one in particular that it has a close proximity to downtown that might be in a bad area because that area most likely is not going to be bad for long. And so, uh, you, you know, this property is not a bad deal from a cash flow perspective and a, a price perspective uh, for something with that proximity to downtown. Now, Josh, why don't you tell them about the challenges that you may face purchasing a five-unit property uh, and then some of the positives on purchasing a five-unit property uh, opposed to maybe purchasing a two to four unit uh, multifamily property, which is going to be different for investors. Sure. In general, the more units you can buy at one time, the more efficiency that you, that you receive per unit. So if you were to buy a single family residence in this area, you might be at 400,000. This five unit, you're at 765, 765. So your price per unit is a significant discount. And so if you can afford to buy a, a 20 unit apartment or an 80 unit or 200 unit apartment, good for you. But if you, if you can, really look at multi-unit properties because that efficiency per unit make, can make a huge difference. And so if you can buy a per unit cost of 150 or 175,000 versus 400 per unit, you might make slightly less, but overall you make quite a bit more and the cash flow makes far more sense on a multi-unit property. And so once you start getting into that three, four and, and up unit, it really starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and I'll talk about the drawbacks real quick. So on anything over four units, you're going to have to put 20% uh, down at a minimum, a lot of times 25, 30% down uh, for the lending portion of that. And then on the two to four units, you are gonna have to live in a unit to really be able to put down less than what I'm talking about. Uh, but you do have that option for an FHA loan where you can put three and a half percent down and so that's one reason that there's an advantage to the uh, uh, advantage to the two to four opposed to the five units and more. Now, one huge positive to five units and more is I can come in, don't even have to do any work to the property, and raise rents 
and actually increase the value of the property because uh, value in terms of appraised value on a commercial property, any five units or more, is based upon the amount of income that it's bringing in and its overall balance sheet. When on a one to four unit property, that does not apply. I have people tell me all the time, oh, this property, this duplex should be worth X uh, because it's renting for this much. That's not how the one to four unit uh, appraisal works. Uh, it's based solely on comps. That's a very, that's a very good point. And something that you that you just said, and we recommend to people all the time, is if you can find a, a, a four unit or less property and you can move in and, and use FHA, it's it's ridiculous. Three and a half percent down, uh, it's a fantastic way to start out your investment property portfolio is buying with FHA. The trick is you just have to move into it. Um, and so if you're willing to do that, it's a ridiculously good way to start off your investing career. One of the things that uh, a lot of investors look at, and they'll look at the property and go, hey, I wouldn't want to live there. I don't, I don't want to live in this property either. <laughs> but when you look at it from an investing perspective, this is the kind of property you want to own. It's a little bit beat up. Uh, they don't have any interior pictures, which is always an indication. So you're probably going to go in as older cabinets, maybe linoleum floors, uh, some, some painting that needs to be done, but it's all going to be relatively minor and a renter doesn't mind. You never want to get into a situation where you're buying something that's necessarily pristine because you're going to be, you're going to be paying a premium for that. And the renters aren't necessarily going to treat your property as if it's a premium property. So you always want to be careful about that. Um, the, other, the other thing is that a lot of investors, when they're buying their property, they're not thinking, hey, when I buy this property, I'm going to have to put $10,000 or $20,000 into it to get it up to where I want it to be. And they don't take that into account when, when they're purchasing. And it's something you really need to take into account. You're buying this property. The seller may be a nice guy, but he's not telling you about everything. So there's going to be stuff that you immediately have to go in there and fix. Expect that. Can you talk a little bit about Section 8? I know you have experience with it, Pierce. This particular property has Section 8 tenants. Yeah, so it really depends on what type of Section 8 tenants you have. Um, and, and each area has a little bit different rules and regulations. Uh, but basically, for my Section 8 tenants, I just have my property managers deal with them but essentially you're going to get a guaranteed amount of rent and then depending on what these people qualify for, let's say it's an $800 uh, amount, right? Then uh, a month, it's going to be a lot more on these properties, but I'm just using that as an example. Then, you know, uh, Section 8 comes in and says to that renter, well, you only have to pay 300 of it. And then they're going to come in and pay the rest and send you a check. And with the areas that I've done it in, they they actually a lot of times will pay you three months in advance um, of uh, that that tenant and and that sort of thing. And it's all based on that tenant's income. Have you had any problems with any of your Section Eight tenants? Yeah, I think um, overall. It's a little bit harder to get 
that little bit of money that that, that Section 8 tenant may owe. Like I've had you know tenants that are renting for 900 a unit and <clears throat> they only have to come up with 100 bucks. And I feel like they feel that they don't have to come up with that because 90% you know, of their rent is subsidized and being paid for. So it's actually a little difficult sometimes to get, it's more difficult to get that 100 bucks than it is to get 900 from a tenant that's uh, paying the full amount on their own. In, in my experience, I think Section 8 is a good program, uh, but what you'll, you'll have with certain tenants, and, and I'm gonna throw Section 8 tenants in there, is that you have to be careful how much do they appreciate the property that they're in. So if they're only paying $100 a month or $200 a month, how much pride are they gonna take into the property? Are they gonna take care of that, of that property in the way that somebody that maybe is paying 1,000 or 1,500 or $2,000 a month? Um, I, think, I think that can be a challenge. So I'm looking this property up right now because uh, it almost looks like it's a four unit with an SFR or with a uh, ADU. And, and where are you looking that property up, Josh? Uh, I'm pulling a property profile. Where, where do you pull a property profile? So uh, I get access through uh, a title company that we use, a escrow title company. And if you uh, can show that you do a decent amount of business, they will give you access to um, county recorders uh, and uh, property data that you wouldn't have or you'd struggle to get otherwise or, or it would be behind a paywall. If you get access, so, so all of this is public record and so it's a question of, of access. And, and so some counties, you have to place an order for access. Some of it's, it's easily accessible online. Um, but I, I never encourage people to do their own um, title work because it can be extremely complicated. It's easy to make a mistake, and that mistake could cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. I've seen it happen to people. And so um, pulling a, a title report or pulling a property profile, doing some research online with, for, through, going through public records can be helpful for you to give you an idea, but it's not going to be the solution uh, versus getting uh, like a proper title report from a co title company that's going to ensure that transaction. So it's good information, helps you to research, but unless you have a lot of experience, don't be making decisions based off of um, pulling property profiles or doing searches within, within a, a county's recorder site, um, unless you have a lot of experience. Josh, to one thing that we're gonna talk about a lot here in this podcast and in future episodes, hire an expert in each individual thing in the real estate game to uh, handle things for you. Don't do your own title work. Don't go fixing toilets. Don't manage your own property. Uh, don't sell your property for sale by owner. Hire an expert. They're gonna do a better job for you if you got the right person. And the only way to scale is when you hire that expert. Absolutely. and. One of the things that I, I see typically is people want to manage their own property. Um, it, can be, it can be very taxing to deal with a renter and all the nonsense that a, that a renter will do. They'll break things and it can be very stressful to, to deal with that. And so if you have to pay somebody seven, eight, nine, ten percent of your gross rents to deal with that and take that off your plate, it's, it, it allows you to do things that are higher and best use. If you're a doctor, go be a doctor. If you're a nurse, go be a nurse. Don't be your own property manager. Um, it's, it's, it's not the way to go. The only time 
I tell people you can do things yourself and even then I don't recommend it is when you buy a property FHA and you have and you're living at the property and you're essentially fixing up your own house and I did that with uh, the first duplex I owned and let me tell you that managing that one tenant in the back and fixing crap for them and making sure the property was maintained was more of a pain in the ass than owning 200 rental units. Well, the other thing is, is that sometimes you get to know, you know, that get to know the tenant personally. And sometimes a tenant will say, hey, I know this guy personally. I'm really going to be on time because I know him. And other times you'll have people that go, I really know this guy. He'll let me slide. And so having that, having that personal relationship can be can be a detriment and you'll you can have tenants that'll go oh yeah i know i owe you two months rent but we're buds so I'm, you're gonna let me slide right and you get into these into these bad relationships that you just don't want to be a part of you have to treat it as a you have to treat it as a business kind of like the 20 bucks you still owe me colin's gonna pay you that is that is that is that one percent origination <laughs> So getting, getting back to this property that we're looking at, so uh, a, common, uh, a common number that people talk about is cap rate. And so I did some uh, back of the envelope calculations. There's gonna be somewhere around a six and a half to 7% cap rate. Uh, you may go in and uh, rents may be a little bit under market, you may go and fix some things, bring that up, bring the cap rate up. Uh, Pierce, um, Common question, uh, common misperception is what a cap rate is. Can you talk about that? A cap rate is going to be your uh, gross income, you know, minus all your expenses, not counting the mortgage. And you're going to divide that by the property value. And so I never try to buy a property that's really below a seven cap. I know Josh is in Santa Rosa, California, and it's hard to find a three cap there. Yeah, if you have a seven cap in Santa Rosa, you you just hit the lottery. Does it's 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 extremely hard to find. Um, what about cash on cash? Can you talk about that? You, you know, cash on cash, it is a number that can kind of uh, be be skewed depending obviously on how much money you have to put down for down payment. I'm always trying to find ways to uh, put as little down for down payment as possible uh, because that cash on cash return is going to be so high. And so, you know, basically what cash on cash means for people out there is, you know, I put up a thousand dollars and I'm getting $100 a year, that would be 10% on my money at every year. And that's based on the cash flow of the property. And so looking at all these different numbers can really help you to uh, figure out if a property is a good deal. And not every deal is going to fit into the box of, well, this is a great cap rate, this is a great cash on cash return, this is a great ROI, and this is a great buy. So you really have to figure out, uh, number one, what you're looking for, and you don't necessarily have to be looking for just one of those. 
I buy deals all the time where the cash flow is horrible initially, but I'm getting it for such a deep discount, I can do a cash out refi and get all my money out of the property. So I don't really care if the property cash flows because I own the property for free and over time the, those rents are going to go up. You know, there's other instances where I'm paying what, what's probably market value for the property, but it's just in an area or the property type is such that it has a very high cash on cash return or, uh, or cash flow or cap rate. And so you don't really care about as much what the, what the current value uh, of that property is. I see, I see it all the time. Um, you'll have investors that are, that are focused on one particular uh, method. They'll look at, hey, I'm only looking at cap rate or cash on cash. Or, or equity position, or they maybe they'll look at one or two, and you're and you're absolutely right. You have to be flexible of mind. So if you're buying a property and it's and, and you assess it as a hundred thousand dollar under market, does it really matter if your cap rate is a little bit lower than ideally you would like? No. If you can save a hundred thousand dollars off the jump, that's a hundred thousand uh, dollars essentially in your pocket. Um, so. So same thing, you can't be a slave to one particular method. You really have to be flexible in what you're looking at. So on this particular property, um, you know, if your cash on cash return is 12%, 12% is, is great in the current market, but if you were to get this at a 50,000 discount over, over market, well, even better. That, that you can't just look at one single metric. The one that's always funny to me, Josh, is when Clients who are buying a property, FHA, it's not their forever home. They're essentially moving in the property for this property to be an investment property for them in the future. It's probably, unless they decide to cash out refinance and get into another property like that FHA in the future, it's probably going to be the only investment property in their life that's a multi-unit that they can put 3.5% down and then they get hung up over 10 grand. Oh, the seller wanted too much, that's 10 grand. 10 grand is $350 in down payment with 3.5% down. And that 10 grand financed over five, uh, 30 years is, is nothing. And, but people get caught up so much on the numbers with that particular strategy. In fact, if you're buying a property FHA, and you can put 3.5% down, you could overpay for the property as long as it appraises, and over time, you're gonna win every single time. And, but people get caught up on those little numbers when, the, when they're putting down a really low uh, down payment, and so the delta between those in terms of ROI and all that type of thing doesn't really matter. You're not going to, you know. So, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, if you're if you're using FHA, your your primary thing that you're looking at is the leverage that you're giving yourself over time. And so, if the property cash flows, that's great. If the cash flows a dollar, that's great. You're not really looking at that day one. You're looking at what it's allowing you to do. And so, if you buy a, a four unit property and it it covers its its rent. That's fantastic. You just used three and a half percent to buy a house. Somebody else would have had to put twenty-five percent down, and you can't expect 
uh, a, you know, a, a, a cap rate of 10% on something like that. You're using a tool, be aware of the tool that you're using and what you should expect to gain over time because of that tool. If I've never brought, bought an investment property before, how I'm gonna be able to attack that property? I might've bought a primary residence before, but I have no team in the particular area I'm looking to buy. And so one of the first things I would start doing is the type of properties that I'm interested in. I would start calling around to all the realtors who have those properties listed and talk to maybe four or five and see which one you vibe with and which one your interests kind of align. And also you wanna have a realtor who has time for you. A lot of agents may not have enough time for you. I think one important thing with a realtor is having someone who's able to go look at the properties and that sort of thing. Then I would figure out what type of lending I, I wanna do. Josh and I do offer mortgage lending, as you guys know, and so one thing that, that we provide is being able to tell you what loan type is gonna be necessary for each particular deal. And each deal is really completely different. There's not a one-size-all loan product that works for every person or every property. And so, uh, we, we can help you do that and if we don't have a product that suits that property or maybe something's going to be better for you elsewhere, we're going to try to point you in the right direction of another place to go. Next, you got to get your insurance stuff set up and so um, call around to some different uh, agents there and it's not about always how cheap stuff is. You, you got to have an agent who's going to explain those coverages to you. And then, uh, you know, last, lastly, you, you want to have a good title attorney and that sort of thing. And then those would be the initial steps. I would have all those people in place before even making an offer on a property. Now, right after that, there's some other pieces uh, to be able to move forward on owning that investment property, but that would be the initial steps that I would take. Josh, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I think that's, I think that's great. If I was doing my first investment property, one of the things that I would do, um, obviously you're gonna do your inspections, get everything through, but you wanna, if you at all can, uh, meet the tenants or at least, at least a, a good portion of them because they're, they're going to be who's paying you. So you can get a sense of it. Gee, this guy looks like he's going to be a problem or this, this lady doesn't take care of her property. So you really have, have a good sense of what you're getting into because it's the property itself you're buying, but you're also essentially buying these, these tenants and their, and their willingness to pay and, and how they upkeep the property. So really pay attention to that. I've had tenants where they're fantastic for years and years, and then I've had tenants where they're a complete disaster. And if you're paying attention, you can get a sense of that. You may go and look at a property and say, this is a great deal, and then you meet the tenants and you go, oh my God, um, I don't know that I wanna buy this. this. These people are gonna be difficult. Like in California, it can take you six, 12 months sometimes to evict a, a bad tenant. And that can really make a difference in your bottom line.
really take a look at those those tenants when you're when you're buying your first investment properties. So me personally, I don't buy in California. So I actually on this topic, I completely disagree with Josh. I don't even want my tenants to know who I am. Uh, if I go look at a property, I'm I'm basically saying I'm somebody else because I, I don't want them calling me because I just don't want that that particular headache. But uh, I am uh, in the in the cases of most properties, I am walking the properties and uh, introducing myself to tenants that that are around and, and that sort of thing. But I'm you know. I do own all my properties through LLCs and, and that sort of thing, and really prefer to remain relatively uh, anonymous. But in California, uh, it is a little bit of a different game there in that you are inheriting those tenants. And so that's why it's pretty darn important to know what type of, you're not only buying a property, you're buying landlord laws in the particular area that that you're buying in and so that's something that's uh very uh important to uh, check out as well we'll end up talking about that as our episodes go on there's definitely states that are preferable to invest in and states that are that are states you want to be really careful about california's tough there's a lot of good things about california california's tough on landlords it's very uh renter centric and uh, there's a lot of states out there where it's easier to be a landlord, uh, make decisions when tenants aren't paying. Um, California uh, is not one of those states. So that's the end of our first episode. Thanks for joining. Uh, we're going to have a episode two in a few days. Keep an eye out. That's the end of the first Own the Block podcast. Please like and subscribe for more.